All right, thank you for listening to this podcast. This episode of Literally is sponsored by Lexicon and Line. Case, tell us a little something about Lexicon and Line. Uh, Lexicon and Line it does three things. They, they are com- communications consultants. They teach professional business writing and speaking courses, and they are research and data evaluation experts. And you can find everything about Lexicon Online at lexicononline.com. Please give them a visit. And thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast, Lexicon Online. So if you need any help with your memoir services, I've started to help clients out. I do anything from full man- manuscript assessment for a flat fee. I do developmental editing for a page-by-page fee. And I do copy editing for another page-by-page fee. Uh, please find any and all my services at casejohnson.com. Or you can find me on Readsy where I have an editor's account there as well. Thanks so much. This is Case Johnston and Brandon Long in Banyan 1 in Ogden, Utah in the Monarch. We are on Historic 25th Street for our second edition of Bourbon Books and Beers. Uh, today, of course, we, we're missing our friend, uh, Lee Camacho Works. And, uh, but today we have Tia Brown, myself, Sean Davis, and our producer, Brandon Long. I just barely finished reading the book, so I have to be absolutely honest with you. Um, and uh, Sean and Tia were able to jump much further into analysis of this book, thoughts of this book over the last uh, few weeks. I wish that someday if we get on a Patreon like some of our friends do and make people pay for their stuff, that uh, we could, um, you could you could just be a voyeur about on our, our message page because it really is, it's fabulously time consuming. All right, so let's 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 get started in. I'm going to hand it actually over to Sean today, uh, who who picked the book and he's going to talk about plot, reasons why he picked it and his um used to be love of Hemingway. I'm not sure if it's still there, but we'll, we'll see what happens. No, it's still there, man. It's still there. So, uh it's Bourbon Books and Bourbon Beer and Books. Books is last. Books is last cuz the emphasis starts it off beer mm-hmm. and then books. So, uh we we chose this this week uh, the Sun Also Rises by Ernest Miller Hemingway. Um, you know, what I liked what we did last uh, last podcast is we all talked about from what lens we read this book. So um, I'm a combat veteran. I was in Iraq and Haiti and down in uh, New Orleans um, after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm you know, a lot of people, not a lot. A couple people in writing circles uh, have even nicknamed me Papa Bear. And I thought, that, you know, all right, that's cool. Um, I dressed up like Hemingway for Halloween uh, one year, and I asked everybody if they want to go get shots. Well, hold on. I <laughs> Let me let me help you uh, a little bit. Laugh track? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just... Uh, so I read this book through the lens of, uh, you know, somebody who's been through combat, somebody who is uh, pretty disillusioned uh, with humanity. I mean, I'm not anymore, but I was for sure for a while. Uh, and I could definitely um, relate with with how he saw the world. Um, I'm just going to go through the plot before we start talking about what exactly I, I thought about the book. But the plot, uh, the okay, so the book opens up with the protagonist talking about another character, uh, Robert Cohn. And Robert Cohn uh, was uh, a, a Jewish gentleman who went to Princeton and was a boxer. And he was a writer. He's a burgeoning writer. He's going to, he's writing the next uh, American novel. And so these, we find out these expats are living in Paris 
And they're all there uh, living in different hotels and drinking a lot, which is perfect for this podcast, right? They're always drinking. I don't think there's a scene in this book where they're not drinking, except for maybe one breakfast where they had coffee instead, but then they start drinking again. Uh, quickly introduced is Lady Brett Ashley. Um, she is divorce or divorcing. She's not divorced yet. And she is the life of the party. And so all of these expats love her and these new people get introduced and they automatically love her. Um, and this group of people go from Paris to Pamplona, Spain to see the bullfights. Well, they go fishing and then they go see the bullfights. Uh, in the end, um, she, spoiler alert. So if you guys haven't read it yet, she is, uh, she sleeps with a bullfighter, a 19 year old bullfighter. And this creates all of these consequences that ripple out through the next, the rest of the book, uh, which ends up there's fist fights. Um, and in the end, Lady Brett Ashley goes off with the, the, the bullfighter, but once she sleeps with somebody, she doesn't want to be with them anymore. Uh, and then in the very end, uh, she is in trouble because he's left and she has no money. So she calls Jake, our protagonist again, and he goes and rescues her. Now, what is a little bit, uh, what I should say about this plot is that Jake is impotent for, and this is, it's alluded to, but never really just kind of written out, which um, I would argue that he probably should have talked about a little bit more is somehow uh, he got his dick shot off or his genitalia was broken or something along those lines. And so he can't sleep with this lady who he very much loves. And it's probably good because once she sleeps with anybody, she doesn't love anybody anymore. So, um, that is an ongoing um, theme in the book. In the very end, um, they lean up against each other and she says, oh, it could have worked out for us. And he says, wouldn't be wonderful to think so. You guys agree? What do you guys take away from that? <laughs> Tia, would you I like to share first? Myself first? Yeah. I'm Tia hey, Brown. Please, yeah, please talk about the, uh, the lens that you, you're reading this from. Yeah. So uh, first, I'm from Buffalo, New York. I'm black and I'm queer, and they hate a lot of people like that in this book. So that affected my lens, obviously. Uh, I'm also I, a woman, <laughs> so and that's how I identify. So that affected my lens. But I've also, you know, been an expat in the past, and a lot of how they live, this sort of boredom and escapism, is how I read it. Like it's not actually fun for them to be wasted all the time or fucking all the time two of the greatest expat vices of all time and also they're expats but they're just really hanging around people from where they're from so they're not actually experiencing paris or france you know they're like shitting on where they go a lot mm -hmm with their friends and this is also something i've witnessed <laughs> so some of the accuracies were kind of frustrating because this was written a super fucking long time ago <laughs> and this is still a thing in some aspect cultures uh, i would say that we can get to the last line later maybe because lady brett there's a there are some things to discuss there for sure you know i wanted to talk about as far as expats go though um you were in uh I don't know. Where do you talk? In Korea? Yeah, I lived in South Korea oh. and I lived in Chile as well. 
So I experienced kind of two different types of the world. I'm trying to think like probably how that compares with living in Paris might actually be not too far off. Um, and definitely the way that they experience Spain feels very similar. Um, just going to a different country where you're not living to see this massive event, right? Well, I, well, I read that during, in the 20s, um, in Paris, 20% of the population were expats hmm. from different countries, mostly the United States, but because after World War One. But it's yeah. also like a, a financial thing, which we were discussing, like back then, sure. I guess even as somebody who hadn't made it like Hemingway, you can go gallivant in Paris and you can go see bullfighting in Spain, which is like, no, you can't right now. Not a, not a 25 year old that I know cannot go easily do that. So that also does speak about the backgrounds they're from. Well, I also say that he loved they, to they say- They are white and wealthy. He, he loved to say he was penniless, but his wife was loaded. So, <laughs> you know, but that's another thing about Hemingway. He's like- I mean, If you can choose to be a writer, I think at that point, he's probably yeah. not as poor. But all of our, um, you know, ideas about how poor we are, it's in comparison to whatever circles we're around. So, like, if you look at someone like Jake, who's not as well off in this book, but then you also have friends who were able to be there and are bankrupt. So, again, the financials oh, yeah. are really consistent. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can still get a chance with Lady Brett, which I like. It means she's not about the money. You know, she's not a gold digger. I do like that. Case. Yeah, uh, my lens, the only thing, what I could think of throughout this whole thing is I'm 45 years old, I have a family, and, uh, you know, life is busy, and to see these, I was, you know, like, I was, like, somewhat, and I'm a writer, so it's like I'm coming through at this as a writer, and it's like, what would it be like to be 25 in Paris, and to be able to just drink and write and do these things, and part of me was... Congrats go all over again. Yeah, really. That well, I thought about that. And that goes down to like when I had to like I took out a piece of paper and I had to chart who got divorced so that they could be with other people. You know, it was like, well, we can't be with each other until we get divorced. And so he got divorced to be with me, but then we weren't actually together. And I was like, well, you guys were kind of always together anyways. It was a very it's a very ancestral book. Um and right. so I mean, I was I came from this lens of being a writer and of being middle-aged and looking at these lives and thinking, you know, um, yeah, partly like when you are 25, you are like when you're in your 20s, you're like that. You know, you you know, I mean, and I guess they're probably older in the book, but I think what Hemingway's 25 when he wrote this. Well, this is his first one. Yeah. Well, he had uh, so he had one book out before. It's like three stories and 10 essays. Yeah. It wasn't anything big. Well, I the only three. He's got sold. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, and we're I know we're going to talk about where he was as a writer going into this and his faults and all the things that he brought to it, his own kind of schema when he looked at when he started to write this book and the shit that he brought to it, and we're like, oh my god. But you know, I mean, and then I also came through. I really liked um, a Farewell to Arms. I thought that was a great book, and I liked um, Old Man in the Sea. I liked both those books. So, going into this book, um, and I, I liked, I actually liked the Movable Feast, which is basically this, um, you know, uh, in I nonfiction love the Nick Adams stories. Well, yeah, and I just so I just, you know, I came into it thinking I was probably going to like this book. I liked those other books, um, and I didn't like this book. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I, maybe it was just because 
you know, I thought what maybe I could have that liver again and I can't have that liver again. And maybe someday I could, and maybe I was just jealous and angry. You know, I came into it the opposite. I thought I was not going to like this book because toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know all these uh, people who uh, are rich and entitled and superficial, but like what T was saying, I mean, these people were not rich. I mean, I mean, today you'd have to be rich to do that. But back in the 20s, you'd be able to, to do that. They were just uh, expats and they were the lost generation, you know. I but I hear what Case is saying, too, because I do feel kind of like, why are you why are you just getting wasted? And like, fuck, you're in fucking Paris. And so there is like there must be some reason they're not taking advantage. If I want to give the writer, you know, if I want to give Hemingway the benefit of the doubt, I have to believe that like, oh, there's an actual reason to why they're not living this experience to the best of its ability. Cause like going to see bullfighting, that's super cool. Being wasted the entire time you're there. I don't know how cool that is, but I'm also 35 now. When I was 25, I probably would have thought that was super cool. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. that's it's definitely say. a factor. And also like they they there is that consistent disenchantment right because um, of producer note the real quick that a lot of the characters are carrying i'm sorry tia uh last time we went live through zoom to facebook and we did not click that button this time was that on purpose was that me you're the producer man <laughs> i don't yeah i don't have access to the zoom <laughs> i didn't give it to him we can go. We can do it right afterwards. Um, okay. Just wanted to clean that up. Yeah. Let's go to the the five word review. So, yeah. so Hemingway wrote this with his iceberg theory on writing, right? The minimalist theory on writing, on what you omit from your story tells as much as a story as what you put in, if not more. You know, like hills, like white elephants, or whatever. It's about an abortion. Abortions never mentioned in here so um so we're going to go for the 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 shortened uh reviews so let's start with our five uh word reviews t you you want to want to start i said uh should have stayed in nature since that was the only time that jake was happy (laughs) like it's pretty clear like and it's also the only time that i sort of enjoyed the writing oh me, it's different for me when they're talking about fishing and swimming, and he and he goes about ten pages about drinking coffee and then what drinks. Uh, you drink. get that. I don't really want to read that much about fishing. I don't care about fishing. Um, <laughs> even when I went fishing as a child, I didn't care about it. But <laughs> it's such. Um, it's so starkly contrast in contrast with the rest of the book. And you can finally feel like a respite, not just as a reader, but for the characters. Um, Like even during those scenes, they're drinking, but they're not wasted all of the time. That's not the primary function of their being and their existence. And they actually have discussions and you can feel how comfortable Jake is with Bill. Um, Yeah. For better, of course, I like Bill, but yeah. They're like, hey, you want to nap? I'm like, yeah, I want to nap. And then they just lay down under a tree and they nap. And he actually (laughs) says that he feels, I think he says he feels warm in his bed when he sleeps. So it's just like, why? I mean, we know why he goes back. He goes back for, you know, Lady Brett. Like, he can't, he's always just 
derailing everything he's doing. He's finally like at peace and he's like, might as well go to this bullfighting and complain about it the entire time I'm there. That's a much better experience, you know? It's also a more authentic experience to me because again, it's just them, they're actually socializing with people who live there. They're, they're more ingrained. Like it's just not, as much as they complain about tourists, they are tourists, right? Like that's a consistent thing. So I'm just saying to Jake, who again, I don't, as another character, I don't even know if I like him. I still haven't decided. Like, you know, you should have stayed there. Like, what's the point in going back to Lady Brett Ashley and talking about how you love each other, but can't do it once again? Well, he had to go to the the bullfights for sure. But then afterwards, he didn't have to go and find her and, and help her out. But yeah. What's your five word review case? Um, it's a book about pompous writers because that's really <laughs> what, what it is. And, and, you know, there's things that I can relate with. There's things that I can say, yeah, you know, this book makes sense. You know, well, I you, mean, hate, you hate books about writers. I hate books about writers. I just, I just, I don't know what it is. I'm like, you know what, as a maybe people who aren't writers romanticize it, you know, and maybe it's, it can be romanticized for readers. But as a writer, I hate books about writers. It's like, First off, they're rarely accurate. Secondly, you know, it is too romanticized. You know, I mean, the whole idea of writing feels like it's a, it's like it's a, I don't know, it's supposed to be a gift and and uh, and also the biggest pain in your life and da, da 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 da. And of course, during that time, they get published so easily. You know, there's like, oh, he sends his book off, yeah. and, and you're like, yeah. that's not true. Um, and so there's that. But things I can relate with is like these these guys. Right. I mean, and I'm going to, of course, I have to, this is anecdotal, right? But I, during college, I lived with a rotating group of five males, right? In a little house. And, you know, everybody was always infatuated with somebody at one point, you know, and it, it could have been the same girl, you know, it was like one guy was infatuated with her and then the next guy was infatuated with her and the next guy was infatuated. And then, you know, I mean that, that happens. I mean, I get that kind of young, I mean, 25 to, or 20 to 30 year old. I would, I would say 20 to 26 year old, that kind of obsession of young males. There's, it's a weird period. My mom says that they take our brains out at 10 and give us back at 20 to give, give, give the, give them back to us at 28. And I, I think that's probably somewhat true, maybe closer to 35, but I get that, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen that happen in life where a fee for, where a woman would come in and just disrupt everything because all the males have no brains in their heads and they're just like, bah! you know, and it's like, so I understand that. I, I, I do kind of get that how she has become this somewhat infatuation with all these, with all these men. And of course she runs off with the bullfighter, which is a totally different thing, which she can do. She can run off with the bullfighter if she wants to. None of them should be able to say she can't. Um, and that's, and maybe that's uh they all wanted to t tell her that she couldn't, but you know, I, I actually applauded Brett for running off with the bullfighter in my mind when she did it. I was like, whatever if she, you know, any man would have ran off with the, in any book at that time, uh, would have ran off with the burlesque dancer. If you could see those as similar arts, you know, they're out there, they're, they're performative, they're sexy in so many ways. They're powerful. The men would have ran off and the readers would have been like, Oh, well, he just ran off. Well, of course he did. She runs off with the with the bullfighter and everybody's pissed off. You know, I mean, so I kind of I understand. 
So I kind of, I kind of applauded her for it. Case, because you have that comparative experience, I am curious if you have any thoughts about the hope that these characters have that that it's going to be different for them. So they like see her date these men and they're destroyed. I mean, you definitely see that with Cone the most, right? He's so confident and charming, despite the fact that he's constantly being bashed for being Jewish. He's still like, whatever. And she comes along and destroys everything. And he should expect that, right? Like he already saw this happen, but everyone believes, even though they don't believe in anything else it seems that they're going to be different yes there's there was like always that hope to, it's like yep. trying to like oh i think this waitress or this exotic dancer is really into me mm-hmm. yeah man but you've been giving her ones all night of course you know yeah and, like the person who didn't think that was mike the one that she was going to marry that scottish guy that went bankrupt and he was okay like all right as long as you know you can talk to me about all the guys he slept with i'm cool with it and <laughs> At the end, he wasn't cool with it. Yeah, he yeah he told her that, but he really didn't mean that. But yes, Tia, uh, there there was always hope. Like I can think of two women who entered that house, and they never dated any of us, you know. Uh, but when they entered, every guy thought they had a chance, and maybe one guy might have like got to talk to her a little bit longer one evening, and he thought that was it. This is gonna change everything. And the next day nobody had a chance you know uh but yes there was always that hope and it's and it wasn't just while she was there it was discussion while she was not there it was like you know like two guys talking behind the other guy's back like well they did you know she did talk to him a little bit longer in the kitchen the other night you know and you're like oh man he's in and you know and and, and he was never in um you know he got ditched just like the rest of us um and she, but, but what she was and i can think of her very specifically she was strong intelligent knew the world knew how to navigate knew how to navigate through all of us in a way that was able to keep us as all friends like you know what i mean keep us keep us as friends but at the same time not ever let one of us believe that we were beyond friends, but always kind of gave us the hope just because we had, just because she was all those things. Does that make sense? She was, you, so guys always, had your lady, you had your lady, uh, Brett Ashley. Right. Lady. Yeah. No, it's so interesting to hear you say it phrase like that, that she gave you that hope. But then you also said, because I believe, you know, like we believe those things. So you know that it's like, not, it doesn't feel as conscious. I don't know yeah. how conscious lady Brett is. Oh yeah. Her actions. I think that she is. I think she is. Also, like she's not lying to them mm. about what's gonna yeah, she called everyone darling because she knew that she had a lot of suitors and she couldn't even keep track of their names, so she just called her darling. But I think that's what they of- are called Mike and Bill and things like that. So I feel like he never uses their names in dialogue. It's always darling. Even even when she's talking to Jake, it's darling. None of them none of them have very significant <laughs> like unique names to me, to yeah, be honest. Maybe true. at the risk of sounding prejudiced, maybe it's because they're white guys, but like Robert, Bill, Mike, and Jake, yeah, that's everyone's roommates in their twenties. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're those like, were those were actually my roommates' names. I'm <laughs> but, but that's what I'm saying is like the gift that Hemingway has is he is able to write about universal subjects. You know, he, he writes about how great it is to drink. He writes about love and how painful that is and how great it is. And he writes about war. And so, I mean, to the point where, you know, everybody can relate. Like, well, like, yeah, maybe all, you know, European Western civilization with Mike, Robert, and Bill in them. But 
But that, that was what he did. He did it good. He did a good job doing that. But before we get into more of like some of the stories and stuff, I wanted to ask you guys what, what you're drinking. This is bourbon beer and books. So yeah, Not wine skin. That's too bad. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, well, High West whiskey, American Prairie bourbon, straight bur- a blend of straight bourbon whiskeys. Park City, Utah, 46% alcohol by volume. Well, I'll tell you what, I buy that here uh, because the first time I had it was uh, over there. And yeah. I don't know, everybody's yeah. surprised that Utah makes really good bourbon. Yeah, they do. And they make I their... didn't know it was from Utah either. It's in like every bar here. And it's sure. oh, yeah. the, the campfire is my favorite. It's not bourbon, but it's the campfire. Is... Campfire tastes like you just ate a burnt marshmallow over the campfire. It it it's really pretty does. campfire-ish, but yeah. uh, this is pretty smooth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I told you guys that I bought a double bourbon uh, uh uh, in their 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 brand and it was I, I bought it for this so we were gonna have it but then i drank it so i don't have that <laughs> i'm drinking Boodle. that's the name of it it's a sour ale from a brewery here in buffalo called thin man like the sours i love sours um and actually this is probably i would i would argue it's the most popular sour ale in western new york it's seven percent it's definitely better on tap, but it's still good right now. Highly recommended. What's it called and what's the brewery? It is Minky Boodle Thin Man Brewery, which I think you can probably only get here, but if you come here, I'll take you to that brewery. <laughs> what was the name of the brewery? I'm sorry I didn't catch it. Thin Man. Thin Man. All right. Well, we so I think we're planning on going to Buffalo for one of these, aren't we? That would be yeah. post-COVID. We go to Buffalo. We could probably do it there. I could set it up. That would Just be awesome. Let's do it in front of a live audience because they they don't care about restrictions in Buffalo, right? <laughs> Come to Utah. There's no restrictions. <laughs> I told I told Sean that basically everything feels like it's open right now. Yeah, same. And, same. and he was shocked. Yeah. Same. Yeah, absolutely same. I ran into this guy. He was a Trump supporter out here in, in rural Oregon, and he was wearing a, a crocheted mask, you know, where it's like you can stop blocking anything, right? But you have to wear a mask. So he was wearing it and it's crocheted. So, uh, you know, I have to give it. I'd hate it when he stops in time like that. I know. It's not just me. Okay. No, oh, no. Yeah, his his internet went out. We, we lost you. You were talking about the crocheted mask, and then you stopped in time, Sean. Well, I was just saying that you got to give it to the guy. I mean, he is following the law, but he's also exercising his beliefs. Uh, and But hopefully he'll get COVID and start really believing. But at any rate. And uh, maybe, maybe he's good at crocheting. Give him that, too. <laughs> I was like, and his beliefs are heavily weighted in crafting. Like, what what are his beliefs? Uh, He's doing. Oh, I'm drinking. By the way, old Milwaukee. Again, again. So if if Mag is if Mag is listening, drink drink with Scott. There we go. Old Milwaukee. I wore this shirt just for you know our buddy Mag because I love that guy. Oddly. Oddly enough, Brandon didn't drink the old Milwaukee's from the last time we did this. I know. That's weird. They were in the freezer the whole time, or fridge the whole time. I never touched one. So weird. Uh, So I know that we were going to talk about masculinity later. So I, the beer I'm drinking is uh, Breakside Brewery uh, here in Oregon. 
and I'm drinking the the Rainbows and Unicorns Pale Ale, India Pale Ale. Uh, it's a good beer. It's got like a um, the the like the notes is called breakfast cereal in pine. It's pretty good. And then I'm drinking uh, also the Old Forester Bourbon. Mm. So Hemingway that this was Hemingway's. Well, probably not the hundred proof, um, but uh, a hundred proof. I splurged for our podcast, uh, but um, Hemingway drank the old Forrester bourbon, but he never wrote about it because of his rivalry with Faulkner. Faulkner always wrote about the bourbons because he's from the South and created his whole world. So Hemingway, well, he'll name off every obscure drink that he gets from, you know, Spain and, and Paris. Uh, he never really talks about bourbon, but that was uh, his, his, his drink. Screaming Paris infidelities, that guy. Insecurities, all the insecurities, both of them. I do feel like Hemingway has like a lot of rivals. <laughs> so, oh my god! So I know Case is like the least surprised by that, probably after this book. Oh, I want to, I want to tell you guys. So, uh, so Hemingway shot himself in the face with a shotgun that he ordered through the mail from Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> this is a true Whoa. fact. Yeah. <laughs> and I, Whoa. But you guys remember John Rember? Right, we had we went to grad school, and John Rember was part of the faculty. And part in one of his uh, his books, I think it was Cheerleaders from Gomorrah, because he lived in in Idaho, where where, yeah. where Hemingway shot himself, and he wrote about that morning. He was mm-hmm. playing in a snowdrift with some other friends, and Hemingway's wife at the time comes out. No, no, Hemingway comes out, and they're playing in the snow, and he says, "How are you boys doing?" And they're like, we're good. And they start playing. Five minutes goes by and Hemingway goes, how you boys doing? And they're like, what? You're good. Uh, and then he just couldn't remember. He just kept, you know, I, I shared a, a, a video link on, on our Facebook page of him being interviewed at the end. Yeah. And you can tell like he's just not with it. Yeah. And that morning uh, he killed himself. And then his wife at the time went to the, sh- the mechanic shop and had that shotgun uh, cut up into one inch sections and put into a burlap sack. And Rember was talking about how he watched her walk down the, the snowy road with a burlap sack full of shotgun uh, parts. And I thought that was, that was just poetic. Yeah. It was Sun Valley, wasn't it? I think it was Sun Valley. Is he close to Sun Valley? Catch him. Uh, yeah. 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 Catch him. So with that, I wanted to ask you guys, I mean, can you separate Hemingway from his stories, especially uh, this book? When you guys were reading it, I mean, it was no. Jake Barnes, but wasn't it? I, I heard, I read in the first draft of this book, it wasn't Jake. His name was Hem. So, uh, cool. And and cool. Kurt Vonnegut talking about Von, uh, Kurt Vonnegut talking about Hemingway uh, said that the the main character in every Hemingway story, no matter what their name is always Hemingway, you know, and that was the problem that he, he had. I mean, it was also a good thing because he was so famous, but it was a problem that he had. When you guys were reading this book, could you separate Hemingway from the story? While I was reading it, yes, because I didn't, I didn't actually know too much about him, but then I read the Vanity Fair article and all of his friends in that article are like, it's a 100% journalism. And then I watched a little bit of the PBS doc, which I don't know if we're supposed to mention. <laughs> but, um, no, wasn't that cool? A yeah, um, and that's, 
you know, they mentioned in that, that yes, up until like in the first drafts, everyone's names were as they were and he changed them, you know, so he wouldn't get sued, which is pretty common for um, nonfiction fictionalizers. (laughs) You got to cover your bases and these people definitely knew money and would have sued. So that's pretty smart, I guess you have to do it. But after reading the comparison of what actually happens during that vacation in Spain, especially you get the sense of like exactly why he changed the characters and some of their motives and some of the occurrences. Jake feels more like Hemingway than Hemingway does in the actual recount. That's true. Minus maybe the impotence. Cause I'm still not sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd really love to talk about that, but um I know, Case, can you separate him away from the story? Uh, well, like I said, I finished this afternoon, and so I had seen what you guys were talking about in the messaging, saying that this was, uh, you guys had talked about the Vanity Fair article. You guys had talked about how he, he wrote this in six weeks and how basically, like Tia said, everybody admitted that it was them. At that point, you know, no, I could not, because I still had half the book left. Um, um you know, did it change how, did it, I can't say if it would have changed how I felt about the overall book. Um, maybe I would have liked it more. Maybe I don't, I don't, I don't know how I, if I would have warmed to it, if I didn't know it was basically autobiographical. Um, but knowing that it was basically autobiographical, you know, I, I struggled with, the fact that he put this out and then he put out a movable feast, which was memoir and was able to make money on both of them. But that's just me from a writer's perspective saying, you know, well, didn't somebody point this out at some point that said, you know, well, at least he didn't write it again through Brett's point of view. (laughs) That's true. He didn't change the, he didn't change the third person. Right. And to redo it. um, And nobody sparkled Or, or gender swap everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I I couldn't because of what you got. I was already too well informed from what you guys had noted to to separate. Well, I want to say so that Vanity Fair article that we're right, uh, what we were talking about, highlighted a book called "Everybody Behaves Badly: The True Story Behind Hemingway's Masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises," and that is by Leslie M. M. Bloom, and that is a, an amazing book. I got a, a, a early copy sent to me to read because I was do, I wrote up. I wrote an article about Hemingway's cats for a Los Angeles fashion magazine. And it was only 800 words, but they had a 12, 12 page spread full color. <laughs> so it's <was> pretty cool. <laughs> well, but going back to what you're talking about, I want to give the, the listener that we have uh, the, a little bit of, um, um, I don't know, just, just, just fill in the blanks here. So uh, at the time, this is in the 20s, after World War I, uh, Hemingway is living in Paris with his wife, and she is completely omitted from the story, along with her 21-month-old son, who is not in the story at all. Uh, and um, he really wants to be a famous writer. He knows F. Scott Fitzgerald. He knows a lot of these different writers. And they're, not only does he know them, they are writing editors and saying, hey, you really need to pay attention to this guy. So he knows he has to write a story, 
And he tries to write a story and his wife loses like the first four chapters of this book that he was writing on the train. Uh, and so he's like, well, you know what? I'll just write it when I can. And so they go to Pamplona and they have the seven days of debauchery and drinking and everything else. And then he's like, I'm going to write about that. And so without asking anybody, he writes about these, the seven day, uh, you know, people all wanting to get with this one girl and all these fights and everything. At one point, uh, Lady Duff, who was modeled, um, who Lady Brett was, was modeled after comes down. She has a black guy and she does sleep with the bullfighter. And so he sleeps, uh, he, he writes about this and he writes it within six weeks. And, and all of a sudden you have the sun also rises. So I don't know if you can separate Hemingway from the story, but Jake, and I want, I want to see what you guys think about this. He makes Jake impotent, right? Or at least alludes to it with his minimalistic style. Jake cannot sleep with women. Brett sleeps with any man that she wants to, but then afterwards she doesn't want to deal with him anymore. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, what was that about that choice, I guess? Well, I I think Hemingway had to ask himself, like obviously he knows that he's writing something that's about masculinity and that like exploring what even that means, right? Um, So he's like probably thinking, how can I make my protagonist (laughs) struggled the most with that. But additionally, I 100% think his impotence is like, it's his wife. Like in real life, he really wanted to get with Lady Duff. He could not. I mostly just keep thinking about him saying to his wife, it's fiction (laughs) through every fight they have. When she's like, I was on this trip, like literally, Everyone else is in this trip. Everyone else who was there is here, but not me. Um, but definitely that's, I think the impotence is something that he perceives that cannot be overcome, period, right? Because with masculinity, it is so traditionally associated with genitalia. And how do you get around that? And he can't. So I think he just had to think of like, what's the biggest way let me just make sure, what if this guy can't have sex? And that would be it. Yeah, but let's talk about that PBS special. I mean, I only watched the first episode, but they, they did highlight, or at least allude to, in their minimalistic style, um, uh, Hemingway's gender fluidity. I mean, his wife, I mean, sorry, that's Fruidian. His, his, uh, his mother uh, dressed him up like a girl uh, for half of his childhood and had him play with dolls and stuff. I mean... You think that affected it at all? I mean, I don't know. Well, he's definitely insecure about his masculinity, as you see through his uh, views of homosexual men. Uh, so, and but he's not insecure about women who don masculine styles. He's very open about how attractive that is to not only him but all of his friends. So he's definitely open to fluidity, even if Jake isn't within himself. Like, because Jake is Hemingway, they both really liked women who dodged masculine styles, which is not uncommon in the 1920s in Paris anyway. Um, but you're definitely onto something there. There's a there's plentyness. Hemingway was on the Kinseyan scale. Right? Am I right? The Kinseyan scale? Like, the, how, how much? Um, yeah, the Kinsey scale. Kinsey I found. 
you're trying to figure out which number he is. He's definitely, he could be a three. Let's say he's in the middle. But he he still holds the records for most blue Marlin caught in one day. But him and his friends were, were fishing with grenades at the time. But, I mean, isn't that masculine? No, but that's what I was asking on our Facebook page. And, I mean, honestly, all the stuff that we were asking. So as we read this, we put on the Facebook page questions and just talk about the stuff that we're doing. And the most interest that we got from all of those was about his uh, masculinity in the, in, in the gender role in there, you know? Um, I think it's very interesting to um, consider fishing masculine because I myself do not, because <laughs> I guess if it's a, if it's focusing on the catch itself, I understand why people might think that like the bigger the catch, but Man versus nature. There is a lot of, um shared silence and vulnerability and it's always perceived as like men spending time with each other which is inherently not seen as masculine because men are always denied that kind of vulnerability but it's a quiet sport but there so, therein lies the metaphor of of catching the girl yeah i mean i mean metaphorically yeah brandon's right i mean it's like they even say there's there's more fish in the sea if you lose one and you know they're the who you, we're gonna catch one and you know, I mean, you, you're throwing your line out there, and obviously Jake's line was couldn't go that far. Um, but you know, I mean, it's just uh, <laughs> his, line broke his, his 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 rod broke. Um, but but I mean, well, I mean, in going he had back, a rod, no line. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, yeah, Brandon's right. The fish in the sea is, you know, it's pretty common with me, at least metaphorically. Um, but when I think of masculinity, though, I do think of men alone, and maybe that's just Utah. Maybe that's my schema. Is I mean, we grew up in hunting camps. I mean, we left the women, and we left early. We left in third, three, four years old, and it was a big deal to go with just the men. Um, I mean, like my grandpa's, and then there was dirty jokes, and it, you know, I mean, it was it was considered this kind of going out into the wilderness as men. I do want to talk about Jake really quickly, though, about with love and with Brett. Um, we, we say that she, once she sleeps with somebody, she's kind of, she's kind of done with them. Right. And maybe this is Hemingway's way of saying with, for Jake that he, she can, maybe there's that hope that we talked about before Tia about, you know, with young men is that maybe he has that hope that since they can never sleep together, maybe he's the one who gets the real love in the end. Cause she could never get past him. Cause she can never, she can never have the physical reaction or the physical tie to him or the physical release of him if we want to talk about fishing the catch and release right that she does with other men with him she, if she ever fell for him she wouldn't have that natural reaction that they've all seen to just let him go maybe that was his hope maybe and jake he was it's obviously false hope but i don't know maybe that was Hemingway's ways way of saying he could have had the love even if he couldn't sleep with her and his wife was there well, she did, at least in the story, always call him for, for help, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have, I have a question for you guys because I didn't read it. So does Brett hold the most power in the story? Yeah. I would yes. Say. Okay. Yes, actually. But only because it seems that the only real voyage for purpose is by owning Brett by catching Brett mm. and because she cannot be caught then yes she owns the power but then I mean Hemingway's the one that made all the money off of this so you tell me uh, 
So, mm -hmm. so Cohn, uh, Robert Cohn, uh, the person I was introduced in the first chapter, uh, he loves her. They had some time in San Sebastian before they all went to uh, Pamplona, and um, they had some alone time. But once they get to Pamplona, she acts like she doesn't really know him, and she's flirting with everybody. And this kills the guy, but he keeps watching it. And I thought, you know, honestly, I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, part of the story. I mean, it was really well done, of course. I mean, it's Hemingway, but uh, it kept me interested. The parts I didn't like was when Brett wasn't in the story. And T and I were talking. I mean, I didn't like her in the beginning. But then I thought, like, well, this is the 1920s, and she's free, and she's independent, you know? So maybe I like this character. I think she just comes off so cold and callous until they finally reveal, like, why that is. And it's so late in the book. They don't make her an actual person until much later in the book, which is, you know, not uncommon for women in 1920s novels. So, so be it. Um but then when she's actualized, you find out that she had this huge, like, largely abusive husband that would, like, threaten to murder her regularly. Or, like, yeah. what did you say? Yeah, girl, go live your life. Like, yeah, <laughs> go live your life. Don't give it in to any of these men, especially because, I mean, none of them are upstanding, really. A lot of them are, I mean, they're all alcoholics for starters <laughs> so and you know that they really just want to be with her because they want her but they don't really discuss who she is very often as evidenced by this reveal like a million pages in and everybody knows except maybe uh cone that uh that hemingway or i'm sorry jake barnes loves her you know even mike the guy who's going to marry her next the the bankrupt guy he knows, you know, Bill knows, um, but they just kind of let it go because I guess he's not a threat because he doesn't, because, because he has a broken penis. I mean, <laughs> she's very much a manic pixie dream girl, like uh. 100%. I don't know if anyone knows that trope, but normally I feel like manic pixie dream girls are kind of like, I don't know if you guys know this term, but more cottage core, like into crafting and like sort of glitter in their eyes with dyed hair. So maybe she comes off as uh, my, maybe they'd say that in the 1920s, like a tough abroad, but uh, she's still a manic pixie dream girl. Everyone Love wants her because they'll be fulfilled and all that, you know, regular stuff. I have a quick question. Just think, like just kind box. of like thinking about what you guys are talking about. 1920s woman independent, you know, um, which I, like I said, I applauded her for that when, when I reading into the story, I wonder if this would have been successful if, Hemingway would have placed this in puritanical America if this was in some city in America during the 1920s. Because if you look at, at maybe a, a similar book where about wanting, where, like if you look at Gatsby, you know, Gatsby always wants, but Gatsby can never have because she, you know, I mean, they have it, but, but she ends up like, you know, but it's a, it, it's, it's awful. It's a sin. It's like they, everybody dies, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I wonder if Paris as a setting is a way in which to explore a female character like this, because, hey, you know, I think you're onto something because when I found out that she was divorced and everyone mm -hmm. still wanted to go get her, that's not something you read about in the States. Even now, it's like she's been touched. Thank you. And it yeah. doesn't. And, and even with her, like, being very open with love affairs, normally they would be like, no, thank you. But this does not stop them. Mm -hmm. um, 
they somehow i don't know they value her which is not a thing and you see that also like in the difference with like a sex worker georgette in the beginning yeah because you see how like jake doesn't want anything to do with her even though he is with her I don't know. Well, oh, she has bad teeth. To be fair. <laughs> well, if you if you look at Gatsby in the characters, you know what was the other name? The woman, the other woman, uh, the other woman's name. She was more flamboyant. She was more independent. She was drunk all the time, and they demonized her. I mean, Gatsby demonized her because in the states during the 1920s, as you know, as you know, as slutty and as too open and, you know, I mean, and, you know, she causes all the trouble in the end when she's drunk driving. And, you know, I mean, this I wonder if this book is successful because it is Paris. And like you said, even nowadays, somebody gets divorced. And then, of course, it's like, well, you know, in books, these even these days in America, they ask, well, what, what did you do? You know, I mean, why, why did you get what did you do to your husband to get divorced? Um, you know, and I wonder if Paris is that time in history where Hemingway, you know, chose to set this book. Well, I mean, like we said, it's made me autobiographical, but it wouldn't have flown in the States. I wonder if that's because Fitzgerald isn't writing about himself, though. <laughs> so mm. it's like, you right. know, if he's anyone in the book, maybe he's Nick. He's not Gatsby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. And if he was Gatsby, he's probably not <laughs> punishing Daisy all the time. I don't know. So it definitely depends with like the love and the character mm-hmm. that you base that on, if you have. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. We don't love our characters, uh, I guess, yeah. unless they're based on somebody. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. He's probably not Gatsby. He probably is Nick, if he's anybody as the narrator. He's probably somebody on the outside seeing things more objectively. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, in this book, he is he is Jake. And so, you know, I want to pull back to uh, to this book in a sense because uh, again, on our thread, we were talking about the lost generation after uh, World War One, and I wanted, to, and I was thinking about like, what would you do if you're trying to write this book and set it for today? And I wanted to talk about one of the things, the facts that came up when we were talking about that was that today, today, you know, you know, we all taught college. Um, you could be of drinking age, 21 years old, and not have a day in your life where our country was not at war. I mean, does that affect this this coming generation? Or are we going to see a second lost generation because of that? I mean, what do you guys think? I wish I knew more about the statistics. about Because if we're talking about 21-year-olds and 20-somethings, then we're talking about gen z right and i don't know how many of them are in the war versus how many were in the war in world war one oh they could have signed up for the war three years ago i mean when they're 18 i I just don't know how many people are affected by it how many people are like it just seems like because everyone had to go right (laughs) that was like unless you had flat feet right or i'm sure there, there are other exceptions i'm not the authority on this but they're it was a requirement you had to go whereas now it's not a requirement well not only that but i mean you can't i guess i just did but you 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 seriously can't compare the iraq and afghanistan wars to world war one i mean world war one is where the whole world got involved and it was the first use of chemical weapons and trench warfare it was fucking horrifying you know compared to today but i still think that there is this I don't know, the social consciousness that's saying 
why are we fighting these fucking I mean, wars? That's that's how I feel about my generation. I don't want to speak on my like as a millennial because we came up during the Bush era, so we were being recruited while we were in high school. So it that felt very surreal. Like people, I don't think we're really dealing with that in the '90s or some other generations before us. It was, and especially the kind of school I went to because it was in a poor area, that was very common to just get recruited. I had a lot of friends go, I've lost friends. And I don't pretend that my generation isn't a war generation. I don't pretend that we weren't infected, affected by that. And a lot of the same, you know, words I hear describing the lost generation about like being lost and wandering and aimless, like every generation I, I feel has faced that mm-hmm. a lot since then as well. Like you hear that Gen X slackers, us lost, like we have no drive. Meanwhile, like Sean, you've put your body on the line for the country. My friends oh, did. Oh, I bled for it. Yeah, I got blown up. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, that's not true at all. Um, but how does it affect this generation? I wonder if maybe, sure. maybe they're more so. Everybody know that my penis still works. <laughs> <laughs> It still works. And <laughs> all my masculinity here. Come on now. I'm gonna go fishing now. So guys. <laughs> I could feel I like should. a worldwide like ease happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We all feel better now, yeah. <laughs> I mean not it's also something that like in the States, the war is not on our soil, but if it's a constant in your entire life and you know your country's at war do not become a little more subdued to it, I think would be more of the question. Whereas like this generation was so actively I don't know, affected, it seems. Yeah, well, we're fighting a passive war and that can be a whole other subject. And, and war, the last thing, yeah, sorry, in World War II was ramping up, right? I mean, there were still, the conflicts were still, even after World War One, they were splitting up the world. World War One, honestly. What's that? Yeah. They never really finished World yeah, War One. Yeah, yeah. The last thing I want to talk about, because I know that we're almost an hour, is the actual writing style, um, uh, minimalism, or the the iceberg theory. I wanted to know what you guys think in your own writing, or if somebody who's listening to this who likes to write, is that a good style? What would you do? Tia, you use the the minimalistic style, right? I did. I did. I just, I said that. Yeah. I I thought I did until I was listening to him, <laughs> like reading his words. I think he's actually too sparse for me. Um, and I definitely used it a lot more in the beginning as a writer because I hadn't learned how to write, right? So considering he wrote this in six weeks again, it does make sense why in the beginning it's less and less. But I... He just, even, especially the impotency, because it's such a big factor. The way in which you never get the full explanation, you do get like this scene where I think, you know, he was, when he was hospitalized after it happened Mm -hmm. and uh, an upper officer, I think says like, you gave more than your life, (laughs) which is such a horrible thing to say to somebody while they're in a hospital. Like, you might as well be dead. So <laughs> that's, but he never actually describes it. And it is the key factor to his masculinity. It's like why he's so insecure. He doesn't give us how it happened. 
And as somebody who's never had that genitalia, I just, I couldn't. And also I've never been to war. I didn't know how this could happen and everything else was functional. And it was so well known amongst his friends as well. And they didn't seem to react that much, you know? They were just like, well, yeah, we know that about Jake, whatever, which made me think, did this happen all the time during World War One? I? I just didn't get enough. About- well, I'll tell you what, like if uh, so, I've been to war, I got blown up, I have a purple heart. And if my buddies who I got blown up were we all out drinking and I got my penis blown off, they would make fun of me non fucking stop. You know, it's just like just just what combat vets do, you know, so people would know it. Well, is you'd, it like you'd have a new were, nickname too, probably? Oh yeah, you definitely have a nickname. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're too busy making fun of Cone for being Jewish, I think, to make <laughs> fun of anything else. Like that's it. Yeah, they totally were. I don't know, Case. Did he leave out too much with his his style of omitting things? I mean, was there too much? Is was like the iceberg ten percent of the the mass of, of of a thing? Was that too? I don't, I think I'm thinking like four or five percent in this book. I don't know. Um, I think, well, I think the nature of the book is we knew every, we, we knew everybody's motivations, you know, yeah. and yeah. It's great character development yeah, for I mean, sure. If we knew people's motivations, then um, I think that's all you needed. And I didn't want any more of the book. So, um, you know, um, but I have a question about the impotency thing. Since we don't get the minimalism uh, part of it, is was it blown off? Because we don't really know it's blown off, right? Or is it psychological? Something they wouldn't think about in the 1920s that you know we would think about now, where there might be some kind of like therapy to you know get things up again, um, you know, physical therapy and psychological therapy to resurrect. Um, the boner it being more psychological makes a hundred percent more sense to me thank you case (laughs) that's it i just really wanted i was with t i really wanted to believe that this was just a psychological thing that he can't do this and if he did have sex with her then um then he would lose the relationship that he had with with uh lady lady ashley but like researching it in in so when Hemingway was hit, he was way beyond where he should have been. He was on the front lines because he wanted to find the war. He wrote his parents. And um, when the artillery round hit, the guy next to him lost his legs. And uh, he got hurt in many places. But one of the places he got hurt, um, the, the, um, the shrapnel nicked his penis. Uh, Hemingway's penis got nicked by a shrapnel. So what Lee was saying was like, well, maybe he was like, what if this would have happened to me? And it did get cut off, you know, but I I don't know. We'll never know. Right. No, I think that's the only part that I, I would have liked to know more about, but maybe that's who we are as a, as readers these days, you know, I mean, we, as readers or even Netflix watchers, we want, instead of two hours, we want, 10 episodes so that we know we want the snyder day. cut of the sun yeah, also rises which was that yeah fucking snyder cut of the sun also rises anyway yeah i think maybe that's who who we are just as readers and back then as readers maybe they're like well we don't okay he's impotent uh we don't know what we don't want to know how we don't want a description 
Um, you know, uh, it's not going to, maybe his editor, you know, is like, well, let's just say that things don't work because we want this to sell to everybody. And if you talk about, you know, uh, strap, don't cut penis, why not? Yeah. Also back to your point, if it's not something they knew how to handle medically, psychologically, then like when he takes it to the publishers, they're like, yeah, this is fine too. That's like enough explanation. It's just what we say when it means you can't get it up. There wasn't right. enough exclamation uh, explanation. There was like what you said that that part in the hospital, but the, the only other part was him looking at himself in the mirror in a hotel saying, God, what a war wound. I mean, how are we supposed to infer from that? Yeah. Uh, he can't, you know, he's not working with. The- I mean, I also think like, if his friends do have some capability to be sensitive to this and that's why they don't make fun of him all the time, that it probably is a physical injury because there's no way to get around that. Yeah. And I think, I think when we talk about emasculation too, is that if it's physical, like literally physically gone or something like that, or only half there, or um, that's le- that's so much less, degrading than if it's fully there and it's psychological, but they didn't know that it was psychological at the time. You know, you can be near a woman and you're not able to function correctly, though you have the parts is much more, I would think was much more damning psychologically, spiritually than saying, well, I don't, I just don't have it. You know, I mean, um, I think major Dan did just fine, you know, in, in Forrest Gump and, um, you know, maybe because a woman can, you know, they recognized it. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, here we're left. We don't know. I mean, all we know is that sun does not rise. (laughs) Yeah. It's also just disappointing that that's like sexually they feel restricted to be honest they could be a little more creative again these are the people that like choose to live in paris and only think like good old-fashioned penetration like lady brett just like you have a lot of issues get over it and just be in love with him already that's really what should be happening well and i think i think jake you hopes other things. Jake, yeah you should write a gender swapped fan fiction of this mm-hmm. honestly that's what i'm thinking I'm just trying it to think about the pretty rough with all the racism and anti-Semitism. Yeah. I think it's the issue. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, that again too, when we go all the way back to the story of, can you like it? Well, once you guys said, well, it's basically autobiographical with all the racism and with all the anti-Semitism, I was, kind I, we didn't of, even talk about, I was, was it really turned off. Yeah. You know? Word comes up with that prize fighter. Yeah. In uh, Vienna. Yeah, that's holy shit. But it's also then because it's autobiographical, your question isn't like, oh, this book is anti you know, anti-Semitic. You're like, wow, Hemingway really hated Jewish people. (laughs) Like that's my takeaway. Yeah. And my in in that book, the uh Everybody Behaves Badly, um, he was quoted as saying, like, yeah, and I made that kike the villain, you know, talking about um what what was his name, Case? Not uh Cohen um name is Loeb. Lobe, yeah. Well, and my question too is, well, the fighter scene—it wasn't just once. I mean, it was just a hammer of the n-word over yeah. and over. And, and you know, once you know, you look back in the 1920s and you say, "Oh, well, maybe we can," you know, say that was common. But man, it was like 40 instances, and that just and, felt like holy shit. I mean, there's so much complicity in that 
because Hemingway wrote it and then he wrote it 29 more times or whatever. So again, it's like, Oh, you were pretty racist. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. um, That was Cone too. Right. Who did that? He was visiting. I think it was Cone or Bill. I'm not sure, but like for them to so easily just dismiss a person and put him in, make them um, not human. I thought that was, uh, that's what struck me when I read it. I'm like, Jesus, man, you guys are, yeah, wow, you know. I was just blown away by the repetition of it. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I was like, every time, just kind of like, just like, really, you know, you know. I mean, I mean, there was a point, maybe like around the 15th time, where I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe Hemingway's doing this for effect. But then he said it once back, and I was like, oh, he's not okay. <laughs> right, right, like, oh, it, I, yeah. So because you could expose a racist that. You don't really need them to say it 30 times or whatever. Right. And then if the protagonist who we see as Hemingway is involved, repeats it in the same manner, that's not exposing the other person. That's being a part of it. And that's, I think that's the, I think that's the line there in fiction where you have to say, okay, that's the artist. That's not the artist trying to expose racism. That's the artist being a part of the racism, you know, and I, Right. That's what's. No, I have a friend who recently I read their book uh, for a blurb, and it's a great book. But they did use the N word, and they were so like, "Do I use this?" And and the way they did is what you're talking about. They're trying to expose the racism. They're not pr- trying to be a part of it. Or, or at that point in the twenties, maybe they didn't even think anybody would care. You know, any any of their readers from here on out, they're not going to care well, that they use. That was my question: Was does he even realize what he's doing? I have no, I don't know. I didn't read it, but it'd be hard to not know. Looking back, I'm sure it is. That's how he wrote. I think that he realizes what he's doing because I think even if it was accepted, I think that the power of the word was still extremely awful and used in the same way. Does that make sense? Like even if it was accepted to use that word in a degrading, dehumanizing way, that doesn't take away the fact that they were using to it to do it or clear them of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I just, so when I first read this, um, you know, I am, uh, um, as my buddy Al tells, uh, says, tells everybody he's a fist in the air socialist. I am, I am. I want socialism. I don't like billionaires. I hate rich people. So when I first read this, I read this as a bunch of rich people in Europe taking vacations and not giving a shit about the people who are serving them. But then it took me a while to realize like in the twenties, that's not how it was. I mean, that's how it is now because our social economic uh, situation. So I had to get, I had to get past that. Um, so I don't know. I'm what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is like reading it now, a hundred years later, I mean, almost a hundred years later, um, it's going to mean different things to different people. I mean, do you guys get that too? Should we give them a break? And like, should we separate? I don't know. I guess Hemingway would be the hardest person to ask uh, this question about, but should we separate the talent from the person? That's a harder question because the talent is blatantly racist. Like he's pretty open about how everyone hates Jewish people, right? Like he's open about all of these things. And I get what you're saying in terms of the time. So yes, sometimes literature is reflective of its times. And what can we take from it that's useful? 
not that scene in Vienna about the boxer in Vienna. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, what can we take from it? Universal themes. I like the first line and the last line. I think they're great, actually. Yeah. I don't think it's, but we don't entirely get to excuse it. Like, I think if, as long as we're having the conversation where we're mentioning the fact that like they were racist times and in fact, Hemingway was racist, then we can continue to talk about everything we said before about masculinity or Lady Brett, you know, those things can still stand with it. Yeah. I love Joseph Conrad. Heart of Darkness is one of my favorite novels. Uh, it's a short, I guess, novella, but he wrote another book called The N-Word and the Narcissist. It was about a black person on a ship who was really lazy and the crew threw him overboard. I mean, that's pretty fucked up, right? <laughs> Conrad, I mean. <laughs> yeah. No, I love what I love what Tia said, that if we recognize those things and call the, and then we can talk about everything else about the other part of the literature. We can't change the work. It's too late. It's a hundred years later. Mm -hmm. He's not even alive. So we can't change him either. I think that's a great, Um, I haven't seen it that way, but I think that's a great way to look at something like this. That if you rewrote it today and I guess if it's still being told by Jake, which it wouldn't be because like, Oh, the N word would change to Antifa. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Cone's probably black. Um, if 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 yeah. it's a remake, that is true. That is true. Yeah, That's yeah, true. yeah. And probably not in Paris because it's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. No, um, I think it would be like Baltimore. Yeah, like Mobile, Alabama. Um, it oh, was, no, no, it's gotta be a city. <laughs> yeah, it has to be a city. So, what's an affordable city that you could just bum around? Wichita. <laughs> it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be in the states. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, it'd be down Mexico. Yeah, it could be in Mexico. There's some it's really Mexico. <laughs> yeah, because there's some. Yeah, there'd be extremely culturally like exploding cities in Mexico that you could probably still do it. You know. Hey, who's your favorite character and why? Oh, okay, Brandon, you go first. I didn't read it. <laughs> No, I know. <laughs> but I'm really liking Brett from yeah, what you guys are saying. Bad, yeah. I like that her name is Brett because that is not Yeah. You know, it's more of a manly name and it's and it, well, yeah, it's well, they got Lady the, Duff. That was that's Brett part Ashley, of, that's yeah. part of her like yeah. boyish nature and again, but also like she's the only one with a name that's sort of interesting, which is weird yeah. to say about the name Brett. No offense if your name is Brett. Well, <laughs> Brett can be um like a really douchey name. Yeah, but it can be a really cool name for a mm-hmm. girl in a, yeah. in a novel. So anyway, it's yeah, yeah. Tia, yeah. so, yeah, who is your favorite character and why? Um, it's probably Cone. <laughs> ah, I didn't think about that. I didn't think it's of that. His story. <laughs> he, I like the main character. I even more now that I've read about the guy he was based on. That Loeb guy sounded cool. Oh, talk about that scene yeah. that he wasn't in. Oh my god! That's so the thing is like. Some of the real things that happen are much cooler than the things that happen in this book, which again, fiction writers, you can write whatever you want. <laughs> that is in your power. And here's somebody who's taking nonfiction and being like, no, this bull seems shit. <laughs> so it's like the both of them, Hemingway and Loeb, in an amateur bullfighting round, right? Loeb jumps, he gets like the, the horns, jumps onto the bull's head 
full, he gets thrown off, but flips and lands on his feet. He <laughs> was holding the horns. So he's sitting on the bull's head holding the horns. So cool. And he <laughs> off, does a flip, lands on his feet. Anyone who takes a beating about their identity, I mean, he shouldn't still be friends with these people, but he still just like comes out like, hey guys, what are we doing every day? Like he's such a, he's so good at bouncing back. I don't know. They're really mean to him. They're like. Well, until he kicks everyone's ass. I mean, he kicks everyone's ass. Yeah. Oh, he's also, yeah, he does finally knock out Jake. Knocks the fuck out. out. Jake tries to get up, punches him again. He ends up under a table. Yeah. It's weird to feel pro violence because after this book, I was like, violence is bad. Bullfighting is sad. But when he knocks out Jake, I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, plus, like, he's still, you know, he's sad about love. And I feel like that speaks to who I am sometimes. I feel like I, like, if I was going to be someone, it'd probably be Cone. Um, but I would never date a lady brat. <laughs> so there is that. Because <laughs> I'm 35. Come on. She was the unicorn. You always go after the unicorn. Who's your favorite? My favorite is Mike, the Scottishman. I love that guy. He has one of the best lines in the whole book. They ask him, how did you go? Agilely? <laughs> Instantly. <laughs> Damn it. Repeat that. Yeah, we got to repeat that. All right. Sorry. So my favorite character is Mike. Uh, he's the guy that goes uh, bankrupt. And they ask him, like, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, two ways, gradually and suddenly. <laughs> Case, who is your favorite character? I've been thinking about this one a lot. Um, I think my favorite character, just because I relate to them so well, is the random party goer at Pamplona. You know, the guy walking by, they're all drunk, they're drinking all day. Um, and they have fights in their in their bars all the time. Yeah, all these fighting their bars. You know, watching these this crazy group of people that Hemingway is writing about, thinking, you know what, somebody should write a book about that. That's my guy. I thought Case was going to be like, oh, I hated all of them equally. <laughs> like, I thought that's what you were going to say. The random party goer. <laughs> yep. yep. That's me. Party goer number three was cases. Yeah, that was me. That's my casting. <laughs> Put the short guy in the corner. Pan away from him. I yeah. like Montoya, the 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 guy who owned the, the hotel at the end. I like Montoya too, because yeah. he also just stops like greeting them after they're fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fuck you. Not even talking to you. I'm sending over a waitress. Don't talk yeah. to me. Yeah. They're like, he hates us. And he's like, yeah, he does. He might be one of the most authentic characters in the book, actually, now that I think about it. Sure, that's what happened. So, oh, I'm down to 10% power mode on my phone. That's for the one recording. So, all right. All right. So, should we give a, like a, like a, we missed Lee? We missed you, Lee, and all your good points. I I missed Lee. Yeah. (laughs) We needed Lee. We did great, I think, but Lee's. She's just tired today, so. Oh, hey, no, well, she got her COVID, her second, I mean. Yeah. About the time that we're in, man. She got her second COVID Yeah, shot. I had mine, and it was, I this weekend, I don't even really remember this weekend. I was fevered. Oh, man. So I'm getting mine next week. The VA is giving the Johnson & Johnson ones because it's easier, one shot. 
So I'm going to go get that. But yeah. uh, my wife already has her. She got two shots and she got fucked up in the second yeah. one too. Oh, that was brutal. And the first one, I didn't get anything. So, you know, the night after the shot, I'm having, I had about five glasses of wine and uh, it was like hell for two days. It was awful. But we're here. I'm alive and. 100%. I'm glad you're alive. Yep. I'm sure sh- really sh- you're here, Case. Yeah. I'm glad to have it in my body. We had to figure out um, how to do this in front of a live studio audience, make it really difficult for Brandon. Mm-hmm. And uh, just do it. We'll do it in all the different places. What I really love is that we're all in different parts of uh, the country. So I got, I got some software we're going to test for next time. We can be live on multiple platforms and watch comments, and I, I think that'll be really um, yeah. a better experience. Brandon, can you can probably manage the comments, right, and like send them to us and stuff? I think that well, I can make them pop up on the screen. Oh, okay, so that'd be cool. Oh, that'd be sweet. You know, we yeah. do have a lot of good people following us on uh, the Facebook Bourbon Beer and Books page already. Um, is that a group or a page? It's a it's a group. And um, people are asking a lot of questions, and, and uh, it's pretty cool, man. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy how it's going. We're gonna grow it, but it's it's going pretty well. Okay, we got to pick next book. I know. Book is it going to be Fight Club or Jaws? I think, right? Oh yeah, let's do Fight Club because then we can talk about masculinity. I want Fight Club so bad. <laughs> so, so I was I was in a uh, writing group with Chuck for a, a while, and um, he wrote Fight Club, and we're talking about masculinity. But every time he had an anecdote about writing, he'd always like use as an example like a 1930s or a 1950s uh, like Breakfast at Tiffany's or some like some kind of a show like a guy a gay man in his 50s would watch and that's him right and so we're like what about snowflakes and shit dude you know and like oh what about you know beating people to death and stuff and it was uh it was pretty funny it was pretty cool i have no doubt that we will read fight club at some point oh i love that book i love that book i I I love fight club i love survivor and i love lullaby those are my three favorite books i read all of them just about we will decide. We will decide. Okay. We don't have a sign off yet. We should yeah, is that on. it? Is that a rap? Are you rapping? We're figuring out how to Case? rap. Yeah. Yeah. How do we rap? So it rhymes with books. Quick. What's that? <laughs> I said what rhymes with books. Go. Oops. Just kidding. <laughs> you said rap. Um anyway, that's bourbon, beer, and books. Yeah. Ah, woo! <laughs> that's bourbon.